This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're beginning a new series titled Written in Blood. Each of the next four episodes will detail stories of well-known and lauded writers who have a history of murder. I was shocked to discover these stories. We often think of artists, writers, musicians, painters, etc. as sensitive and gentle souls. But some of these authors committed the most brutal crimes I've covered to date. And not all as it seems on the surface, and that for sure, is something that we've discovered over the last almost 100 episodes of Once Upon a Crime. Speaking of 100 episodes, we'll be reaching that milestone this month. Once Upon a Crime's 100th episode will be released on August 20th. I'm so grateful to each and every one of you for coming along on this true crime journey with me. I've had a blast sharing these stories with you, and I plan to continue to do so for many more years. So cheers to all of you wonderful listeners. In this first chapter of Written in Blood, I will share the story of two authors who were convicted of brutal murders, but this did not stop them from becoming highly regarded authors and even celebrities. This is chapter one of Written in Blood, Jack Henry Abbott and Issei Sagawa. In 1978, Norman Mailer received a letter from a federal inmate. Mailer had been hailed as a great American novelist since his first book, The Naked and the Dead, was published in 1948. In 1978, Mailer was working on The Executioner's Song, a novelized account of the life and crimes of Gary Gilmore, a two-time murderer executed by firing squad by the state of Utah in 1977. The letter Mailer received was from Jack Henry Abbott, who was serving a sentence for bank robbery in a Marion, Illinois penitentiary. Abbott had read an article about Mailer's work on the Gilmore book and offered to help Mailer understand what prison life was like on the inside. Mailer was impressed with Abbott's writing and his initial candor about his time in prison. They began a lengthy correspondence. Jack Henry Abbott was born on a U.S. Army base in Michigan to an American soldier and a Chinese mother. Not much is known about his very early life, whether his father abandoned the family or if they stayed intact or how many siblings he had. It is known that he had an older sister named Frances, who remained in touch with him throughout his life. Abbott would only write that he was, quote, reared by the state from an early age after being taken from what the state calls a broken home, end quote. What is known is that Abbott was bounced around to foster homes as a child, and when he was unsuccessful at complying with the rules of these placements, he was eventually sent to reform school. He spent the ages of 9 through 18 in several reformatories in Utah. By age 12, he was being housed in a school for delinquent boys. Abbott would later write about this time, saying, I served so long because I could not adjust to the institution and tried to escape over 20 times. I had been there for the juvenile crime of failure to adjust to foster homes. Upon reaching the age of majority, Abbott was released. But his freedom only lasted six months before he found himself incarcerated for breaking into a shoe store and stealing checks, which he then made out to himself. He was sentenced to a maximum of five years on the bad check charge and would forever minimize this crime as merely having, quote, written a bad check. While serving his time at a Utah prison, he fatally stabbed another inmate. In 1966, 
He was sentenced to three to 20 years for this murder. In 1971, Abbott escaped from prison and went on the run. He robbed a savings and loan association in Denver and was caught a month later after traveling as far as Queens, New York and Montreal, Canada. He received an additional 19 years on his sentence, after which he was transferred to federal prison in Marion, Illinois. There he became a voracious reader and began writing to authors, including Norman Mailer. He wrote to tell Mailer that he could never understand the violence that permeated prison life unless he heard it directly from a prisoner. Mailer was thrilled to use Abbott's first-hand experience in lending an authentic voice to the executioner's song. Jack had devoured books on philosophy, politics, and religion while in prison. He used the writings of Kant, Marx, Lenin, Dostoevsky, and others to create his own views on humanity, violence, and crime. To hear Abbott tell it, the majority of violence perpetrated behind prison walls was directed at prisoners from guards. It was Abbott's contention that his own acts of violence were only in self-defense, and that the guards, whom he constantly referred to as pigs, took delight in torturing him and other inmates for no reason other than their brutality and inhumanity. But Abbott's earliest records indicate that he was constantly bucking the rules. Abbott himself would admit as much in his letters to Mailer. I cannot adjust to daily life in prison, he wrote. For almost 20 years, this has been true. I have never gone a month in prison without incurring disciplinary action for violating rules. Not in all these years. But then in another letter, he seems to brag. My prison record has been more violence reported by guards than that of any of the 25,000 federal prisoners behind bars. However, he wrote, I am not guilty of nine-tenths of the charges. His record in prison included many disciplinary infractions, including drunkenness, assaults on prison employees, and destruction of property. He once stabbed a prison doctor with a sharpened ballpoint pen when he was being treated for a slashed wrist following a suicide attempt. He was eventually housed in the prison psychiatric facility after becoming increasingly paranoid that prison guards, officials, and other inmates were trying to kill him. Still, Mailer was impressed with the well-thought-out and executed letters he received from Abbott. So much so that he began to sing his praises as a writer. In June of 1980, the New York Review of Books published a selection from the letters with a short introduction written by Mailer himself. At the same time, Mailer and others began to rally for Abbott's release. New York's Literary Society, and even celebrities like Susan Sarandon, cited Abbott's writing talent as reason enough to be shown leniency by the parole board. Mailer himself was writing on a high at this time and may have felt somewhat beholden to Abbott. After his critically praised and best-selling first novel, Mailer had released three others that had not been as well-received. Barbary Shore was panned by critics, as was The Deer Park, although The Deer Park was a bestseller. His fourth novel, An American Dream, was released as a serial first in Esquire magazine, a sign that the publisher didn't have complete confidence in its success. It was released as a novel to mixed reviews, but became a bestseller. Mailer was still not receiving the critical acclaim he craved. Then he released The Executioner's Song. His over 1,000-page novel about Gary Gilmore was his most ambitious project to date. Mailer was never able to speak to Gilmore in person, but Abbott met him twice while at the Utah prison and again at another prison in Ohio. 
Mailer was grateful when Abbott began providing insights about life in the Utah prison he shared with Gilmore, as well as his personal impressions of Gilmore himself. Mailer wrote to Abbott, quote, Your letters have lit up corners of the book for me that I might otherwise have not comprehended or seen only in the gloom of my instinct unfortified by experience. Often the things you say corroborate my deepest instincts about what prison must be like, end quote. The Executioner's Song was a bestseller and a critical success. The book earned Mailer the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1980. He showed his gratitude for Abbott's contribution by throwing his support behind the inmate and paving the way for his literary career. Abbott completed his sentence in federal prison for the bank robbery and was returned to Utah, where he was granted a parole hearing. At the time of the hearing, Abbott had a lot going in his favor— his selection of letters had been optioned for a book by Random House, and Abbott signed a contract complete with a $12,000 advance. Mailer promised the parole board that should Abbott be released, he would give him a job as a research assistant. Mailer wrote in a letter of support to the board, Abbott has the makings of a powerful and important American writer, and I have encouraged him in that direction. In June 1981, Jack Henry Abbott was granted parole. Norman Mailer picked him up from the airport himself and drove him to his halfway house placement on East 3rd Street in Manhattan. Abbott's book, titled In the Belly of the Beast, was heralded by critics as a powerful indictment against U.S. penal institutions, crime, and violence. One book critic called it awesome and brilliant and said that the book's impact was, quote, indelible and as an articulation of penal nightmare, it is completely compelling, end quote. Abbott was interviewed by journalists and on television talk shows, including Good Morning America. He became a media darling within days of being released from prison on murder and armed bank robbery charges. But it would all come to a screeching halt just three weeks later, in the early hours of July 18, 1981. Jack Abbott and two women companions were having dinner at Binibon, an East Village restaurant. Abbott had eaten there several times already since his halfway house was only about three blocks away. In the early morning hours, Abbott got up from the table to use the restroom. He asked an employee, 22-year-old Richard Aiden, for directions to the facilities. Aiden explained that the only restroom in the building was located through the kitchen, but only employees could use it because the restaurant's accident insurance did not cover customers. Abbott argued with Aiden, and they eventually took the argument outside. There, their disagreement continued to escalate, and Abbott drew a knife and stabbed Aiden in the chest, killing him. Abbott briefly returned to the restaurant to tell his companions to leave before fleeing the scene himself. Aiden was a Cuban-born actor and dancer who had recently returned from a tour in Spain. Ironically, he was also an accomplished writer, and a screenplay he'd written about the Lower East Side was being produced in an experimental New York theater. He'd been recently married to an actress-choreographer named Ricci. Her father was the owner of the Binibon restaurant, and Aiden had been helping his in-laws out by working there as a part-time waiter when he had his run-in with the ex-con, Abbott. Six hours later, Abbott showed up at the home of another writer on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, where he'd been invited for brunch. He spent a pleasant couple of hours with his host, talking about writing and his upcoming projects including a possible fellowship at a writer's colony in New Hampshire. He did not mention the stabbing. After their brunch ended, Abbott disappeared, 
and the NYPD and federal agents began a manhunt to bring him to justice. The day after the murder, a favorable review was printed in the New York Times for In the Belly of the Beast. Abbott had been free for a total of approximately six weeks. On September 23rd, two months after the murder, Jack Henry Abbott was captured in Louisiana. He was returned to New York and indicted on murder charges on October 7th. Abbott chose to represent himself, not trusting anyone connected with the justice system. He detailed for the court his accounts of abuse at the hands of the foster care system, the juvenile authorities, and the penal system. He admitted to killing Aiden, but said he felt threatened and struck out in self-defense. He was found guilty of first-degree manslaughter and given the maximum sentence of 15 years to life. Backlash against Norman Mailer and others who had vouched for Abbott, including his publisher and the editor of the New York Review of Books, was immediate. Mailer asked for a statement, said he felt, quote, very largely responsible for the death of Mr. Aiden. He also said he, quote, never thought Abbott was close to killing, and that's what I have to sit in judgment of myself. I was just not sensitive to the fact, unquote. But Henry Howard, the proprietor of the restaurant and father-in-law of Aiden, said he didn't blame Mailer, but the criminal justice system for his son-in-law's death. I'm not mad at Mailer or Random House, Howard said. It's their job to recognize writing talent, and they saw it in Jack Abbott. My quarrel is with the prison authorities, with the establishment. It's their job to decide who goes out of prison, and not because of some pressure from great writers or publishers. In 1986, Abbott released a second book from prison titled My Return, outlining his release from prison, the murder of Aiden, and his return to prison. He was not remorseful for his crimes or the death of the young actor, but blamed his actions on the prison system, the government, and even society in general, who he believed owed him an apology for the way he'd been treated throughout his life. The book did not sell. Soon after his conviction on the manslaughter charge, Abbott filed a pro se brief with the New York court, asking for his sentence to be vacated. In the entire document, he never mentioned his victim, Richard Aiden, by name, only referring to him as the deceased. His account of the murder is completely devoid of responsibility on his part. His statement is told in a passive voice, a great writing technique, but a thinly veiled deflection of responsibility when read by a judge. It reads, there was never sufficient evidence presented at my trial to support a finding of intent to kill. The deceased in this case was inflicted a single wound after circumstances which would have demanded the infliction of more wounds if the single wound had been inflicted with the intent to kill and not merely to repel him. Unquote. In other words, if I'd really intended to kill him, I would have stabbed him more than once. Of course, that would imply that Abbott needed more than one stab wound to kill Aiden, which he did not. Aiden had received one fatal stab wound to the heart. Hearing of Abbott's callous defense of the murder of her husband, Ricci Aiden filed a civil lawsuit against him for $10 million. In the Belly of the Beast was a bestseller, and Abbott had already received in the neighborhood of $20,000 in royalties, most of which had gone to his legal defense but it was rumored that the proceeds from the book could amass over $100,000 or even $250,000 when all was said and done. 
Abbott acted as his own attorney in the civil trial, as he had done in the criminal trial. He claimed in court that his attack on Aiden was quick and that the man had not suffered. He cross-examined the widow and proved himself once again to be cold and unfeeling, even admonishing Mrs. Aiden for weeping during her testimony. At one point in the trial, he commented that her husband's life was, quote, not worth a dime. The court awarded her $7.57 million in damages. They included Abbott's future earnings, as well as $100,000 he'd already made from the sales of In the Belly of the Beast. She would also collect a $15,000 advance Abbott had been paid for the movie rights to his first book. He had already been barred from any use of the proceeds from the book My Return, which detailed the murder and his subsequent incarceration. The so-called Son of Sam law enacted in New York State made it illegal for criminals to profit from their crimes. While on the run after the murder of Richard Aiden, Jack Abbott continued to write. But this time, he wrote letters to his editor at Random House and his literary agent. The letters were sent to his sister Frances Amador, who then forwarded them to New York without the original postmarks from wherever Abbott was hiding out. In the letters, Abbott makes no mention of the murder. His concern was for his book royalties and future earnings. He told his business associates that he was transferring all rights and agreements for his book, In the Belly of the Beast, to his sister, and that she was to collect all his royalties. He also authorized his sister to sign any and all contracts with producers who had expressed interest in staging or filming a play based on the book. When these letters were discovered, U.S. Marshals, who were still in the process of searching for the fugitive, asked his agent to withhold any payments to Mr. Abbott's account. In the end, Richard Aiden's widow would receive all royalties the book received as part of the civil suit. In 2001, Jack Abbott came up for parole and appeared before the board to plead his case for release. He was turned down because of his long list of prison infractions and disciplinary actions behind bars, and also because he failed to express any remorse for his crimes. Five months later, he was found dead, hanged in his cell in the maximum security unit at Wendy Correctional Facility in New York. A prison spokesperson reported that he'd left behind a suicide note, but its contents were never disclosed to the public. The whole saga of Jack Henry Abbott became known as a cautionary tale in the intellectual and literary world. Much like the Jack Unterweger case that I detailed in episode 92, sometimes the public can be seduced by more underground aspects of society. And as we know, crime and criminals have always held a certain fascination for us. One reason for this is that the majority are not privy to the goings-on in the criminal world. So when a person who has experienced that world can speak or write about it in an intelligent and compelling way, we take notice. Add to that an endorsement from a well-known and respected author, media star, or other personality, and the criminal's words can take on a life of their own. Of course, when Abbott murdered again, only six weeks after his release, his supporters quickly distanced themselves from him. Norman Mailer would continue to correspond with him for a time, but even he would drop his former friend before long. The public began to debate whether prison reform was actually possible or if the sole purpose of penal institutions should be to inflict punishment. It's a debate that continues today. Jack Abbott was held up as a romantic figure, as a survivor of a tough upbringing. 
But the reality was, no one really knew much about Jack Abbott's early life, and the details of his prison record were not even questioned until after his murder conviction and return to prison. After Abbott's suicide, Norman Mailer would comment, His life was tragic from beginning to end. I never knew a man who had a worse life. But Mailer only knew the version of Abbott's life that Abbott himself had shared. No new details of Abbott's early life would be forthcoming. He never shared any info beyond the basics of his birth or his parents, but more details of his time in prison eventually emerged. As far back as 1964, prison psychologists noticed his potential for violence. Despite benefits of medication, one doctor wrote, Abbott was extremely angry and had a long-standing thought disorder. He'd, quote, never developed the ability to interact socially with others, was in a paranoid state, and was capable of sudden violence, unquote. In 1973, another report stated Abbott was a potentially dangerous man with a hair-trigger temper. Just before his release in 1981, Captain Thomas Bona, director of the Maximum Security Unit at the Utah prison, submitted a recommendation for Abbott, saying that he opposed his release. He believed that the prisoner was, quote, a dangerous individual who should be given a rehearing in two years, unquote. Bona knew him when he was previously incarcerated in Utah, and he didn't see a changed man when Abbott returned from federal prison. His attitude, his demeanor, indicated psychosis, Bona wrote. One question that was never answered or maybe not even asked, is this. Did Jack Abbott's time in prison make him violent? Or did his inherent violent nature keep him imprisoned? At his parole hearing on April 8th, before the Utah Board of Pardons, the chairperson opened the proceedings by telling Abbott that his case was probably one of the most fascinating he'd ever seen. Here was an inmate who just had a book published and had the promise of a job with Norman Mailer and scores of letters from others who attested to his sensitivity, talent, goals, and accomplishments. He was very impressive on paper, but what about his record in prison, his explosive temper, and violent acts? Abbott told the board that his previous violent acts had all been in self-defense, born from his survival instinct. He'd grown up in a violent environment and learned to fight to survive. But then he explained, I'm not violent to where I'm going to go out and be a maniac, if that's what you mean. He was asked if there was a potential that he might hurt someone once he was free and living in society. No, no, Jack Abbott responded. There won't be nothing like that. Two months later, he was released. Of course, all this information came much too late to make a difference, especially for Richard Aiden. Jack Abbott became famous for being a convict who became a writer. But what if a person became a celebrity because he committed a brutal crime? The next story is as unbelievable as it is gruesome. Fair warning, this story contains details of cannibalism and is not for the faint of heart. Issei Sagawa was born in Kobe, Japan in 1949. He was delivered prematurely and had many health issues at birth due to his small size and low birth weight. He would remain small, and some of his body parts were not completely formed. He would only reach 4 foot 9 inches tall, or approximately 145 centimeters, as an adult. His head appeared unusually large on his small body. His feet and hands were undersized, and his fingers were short and stumpy. Sagawa was born into a wealthy family, 
His father was the president of Kurita Water Industries in Tokyo. He was very bright and a good student. He enrolled in Wako University in Tokyo to study English literature. He was known for his brilliant mind and his extensive knowledge of art, literature, and poetry. But Sagawa had a problem. Well, more like an obsession. Since he was a very young boy, he was obsessed with a specific type of woman. The women he fantasized about were fair-complected, blonde, robustly healthy, and tall. Everything he was not. His obsession wasn't just about dating beautiful women or even having sex with them. Yes, that was all part of the fantasy, but there was one secret fantasy that he'd harbored for years. He was obsessed with the idea of killing and eating one of these women. His thoughts on this subject were very specific. When he'd see a beautiful woman he was attracted to, he wondered what her flesh would taste like. He thought about how he'd cook and eat her, planning recipes in his mind. This was all he thought about. Sagawa would later share various versions of how this sick fantasy took hold. First, he said that he'd learned about cannibalism from fairy tales. This is a common dark theme in some very old children's stories. Hansel and Gretel were tricked into an oven to be eaten by a witch, but were clever enough to find a way to escape. Little Red Riding Hood was outsmarted by a wolf, whose goal was to devour her. In some stories, her grandmother had already been eaten by the wolf before Red Riding Hood arrived. And while not strictly cannibalism since the wolf was an animal, he often changed forms or disguised himself as human to trick the young traveler. Other children's fairy tales with themes of cannibalism include Jack and the Beanstalk, where the giant was enamored of eating Englishmen and even recited a poem about it. Fee-fi-fo-fum, I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he alive or be he dead, I'll grind his bones to make my bread. Disturbingly, I didn't even have to Google that little ditty. I could still recite it by heart. Like many children, these stories are second nature to us. We were raised on these macabre stories. But most children don't take these stories literally or equate them so closely to cannibalism as Sagawa did. But Sagawa gave other accounts of the origination of his obsession. He also blamed his dark thoughts on nightmares he'd experienced as a child. In one account, he was being chased by his parents in the dream. They were attempting to catch him to eat him, he remembered. In another version, he and his brother were being boiled in a pot to be eaten by a stranger. Finally, he attributed his cannibalistic thoughts to a game he used to play as a child. His father and uncle played with the children by chasing them. They would pretend to be giants, who, if they caught the children, would threaten to eat them, making the game more thrilling, or perhaps more terrifying. All of these stories and games are simply harmless childhood experiences for most, but Sagawa let the dark thoughts take over most of his waking life. Some would later theorize that his early developmental issues may have played a part in these fantasies. It was suggested that a part of his brain had sustained some damage or had not developed normally, which led to his perverse thoughts. In any case, as Sagawa grew into adolescence, he found himself planning how to carry out these cannibalistic fantasies. Being an intelligent person, he realized that this was not normal, not okay. Still, he felt he couldn't control his urges. In 1972, while at university in Tokyo, he made his first attempt to act out on them. A German woman was tutoring him in her native language, and he became obsessed with her. 
he crawled in through her apartment building one night, intent on killing her. He hadn't thought to bring a weapon, and by the time he'd found something in the apartment to hit her with, the woman awoke and screamed. He fled from the apartment, but was caught and charged with attempted rape. He found this strange, as his goal was not to sexually assault the woman. What he'd planned to do was kill her and eat her. After his arrest, Sagawa sought out a psychiatrist, whom he told of his murderous urges. The doctor believed that Sagawa was a very dangerous man and should be locked in a mental facility, especially since he'd already come close to attacking one woman. His father, wanting to avoid embarrassment and scandal, was able to pay his son's way out of the charge. He then sent him out of the country to attend school in France. This did little to quell Sagawa's urges. He now had plenty of tall, blonde, European women to choose from for his next victim. Once in Paris, Sagawa decided he needed to have a more thought-out plan if he was going to carry out his fantasy. He purchased a gun that he kept in his apartment. He began hiring sex workers to bring back to his apartment. Again, he was not interested in sex. His plan was to kill them and cannibalize their bodies. But each time, after waiting for the woman to turn her back in order to shoot her, he changed his mind. I could not pull the trigger, he would later say. It was not because of moral or religious reasons. I was scared that by pulling the trigger, I would be giving in to my desires. Sagawa would go on to say that it was more than a desire that took hold of him. He felt it was almost an obligation, and in his mind, something he would eventually have to carry out. That's the thing about an obsession, Sagawa explained. It means that whatever your brain or body tells you to do, you have to do it. You become a slave to your obsession. At the university, Sagawa met 25-year-old Renee Hardevelt. Renee was tall, blonde, and beautiful. She was Dutch and spoke three languages and was studying for a Ph.D. in French literature. Sagawa asked her to tutor him in German. His family was wealthy and could pay her well. She accepted the offer of the part-time position. Sagawa and Renee began spending time together. They discussed literature, poetry, and other interests. Sagawa was an expert on Shakespeare's plays and English literature in general. They attended art exhibits together, as both Renee and Sagawa enjoyed French Impressionism. Renee considered Sagawa a friend, but Sagawa believed that he loved Renee. The only possible expression of that love for him, Sagawa would later explain, was to literally consume her. He put his plan into motion to act out on his long-held fantasy. Sagawa invited Renee over for tea, and she accepted. She trusted her friend, and had even invited him to her apartment more than once for tea and conversation. She was much taller and stronger than the petite man, and certainly wouldn't have felt physically threatened by him. Besides, he had always been a perfect gentleman towards her, although she must have known he'd begun to have romantic feelings for her. He'd once written and presented her with a love poem. She told him that she was flattered, but she only wanted to remain friends, and he'd accepted that. The first time Sagawa invited Renee over for dinner, he asked her to read a poem in German to him. While she did so, he planned to come up behind her, unaware, and shoot her. But once again, he either couldn't bring himself to pull the trigger, or the gun jammed. He gave two variations of the story later on. Either way, Renee went home at the end of the night, 
thanking him for a lovely dinner. He worked up his nerve once again and invited her to return another evening. This time he told her he'd like to make a recording of her reading the poem. She agreed. The date was June 11, 1981, and it was Issei Sagawa's 32nd birthday. He handed Renee the book of poems while she sat in a chair. He turned on the recorder as she began to read. While she was occupied, he retrieved the gun and came up behind her. He shot her once in the back of the neck, and she fell to the floor. He was surprised at how much blood there was, he would later say. He hadn't expected that. He said his first reaction was to call an ambulance and the police. He felt he might have been in a bit of shock for a moment. Then he realized that this was his fantasy come true. After so many years, he had a person at his feet that he could possess completely. He first removed her clothes and touched her skin. He had never felt her skin before, and it began to awaken all the desires and urges he'd kept hidden for so long. Then he retrieved a knife. He spent the next several hours cutting pieces of flesh to consume. He would go into detail later about the appearance, texture, and taste of each piece, details that I will not recount here. They are easy to find in as many accounts of his crime that he'd given later interviews. Suffice to say that he indulged himself in his cannibalistic urges and his sexual fantasies with the corpse. Finally, as the body began to decompose a day later, he realized he'd have to dispose of it. He was not strong enough to carry a body in its entirety, so decided he'd have to cut it up in order to cart it away from the apartment. Some pieces he kept, storing them in his refrigerator. He then bagged up the remains and placed them in a small suitcase. He called a cab to take him to the Bois Bologna Park nearby. It was after midnight of the day following Renee's murder. He'd planned to throw the suitcase in the small lake located in the park, but he was barely strong enough to lift the suitcase. The cab driver had to help him place it into the vehicle. As he struggled with the heavy object, some early morning joggers saw him and he panicked. Dropping the suitcase among some bushes, he fled, returning to his apartment. The joggers, curious, went to the area where the man had dumped the object. They could plainly see what appeared to be blood leaking out of it. They called the police and gave a description of the odd man they'd seen in the park. Police arrived at Sagawa's door the next day with a search warrant. It wasn't difficult to identify the small Japanese man with the odd features in Paris. When they arrived, he let them inside without incident. He immediately began to confess to his crime, showing them the pieces of René Hardevelt that he had stored in his freezer. He was arrested. Once in front of a judge, he began to graphically describe his crime and exactly what he'd done to his victim. His confession was so gruesome, descriptive, and told so matter-of-factly that the judge believed Sagawa insane and declared him not competent to stand trial. He was sent to the psychiatric ward of the Paul Giraud Center Hospital for an indeterminate length of time. The man was clearly delusional, the judge ruled, and it was uncertain whether he would ever be able to assist in his own defense at a criminal trial. In fact, multiple psychiatrists evaluated Sagawa, and each determined that he would never be cured. Of course, the story of the confessed cannibal reached a wide audience, 
and many were fascinated by the details. While at the psychiatric hospital, Sagawa began corresponding with Japanese authors who wanted to know more about him and his crime. Sagawa was happy to supply them with the details. He was then visited by Inuhiko Yamoda, a respected author in Japan who'd won many literary prizes for his work. Yamoda wrote up Sagawa's account of the murder. It was published in book form under the title In the Fog. In 1984, after he'd been hospitalized for two years without trial, Sagawa's father was able to broker a deal to have his son transferred to Matsuzawa Hospital in Japan. There, Japanese psychologists evaluated him and determined him to be, quote, sane but evil. Sagawa, found sane, could no longer legally be held in the psychiatric hospital. Now deemed competent to stand trial, he could be tried for his crime. Unfortunately, Japanese authorities found they lacked certain legal papers from the French court in order to do so. Sagawa was held for 15 more months in the hospital before his lawyers petitioned the court for his release, as no criminal charges had been brought against him. With their hands tied, Japanese authorities had no choice but to let Sagawa sign himself out of the hospital on August 12, 1986. To this day, he remains a free man. As shocking as Sagawa's crime was, I was most interested in covering this story for something other than the cannibalism angle. As you know, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, I'm not into the gore factor in the salacious details of the crime as much as I am into the backstories, the psychology of the criminal, the events that led up to the unfolding of the crime, and in this case, the events that occurred after the perpetrator, incredibly, was able to walk away scot-free after such a cold, callous, and brutal act of murder. The aftermath, I believe, is even more disgusting and infuriating than the crime itself, if possible. Issei Sagawa returned to Tokyo and was immediately sought out for interviews and treated as a minor celebrity. Rather than an outcry from the public that a confessed murderer and cannibal was walking freely amongst them, instead, they were intrigued by his story and clamored for details of his gruesome crime. Details he was all too happy to supply. The book he'd co-authored, In the Fog, became a bestseller in Japan. It was a fictionalized account of the murder of René Hardevelt. Fictionalized in the sense that Sagawa embellished the details to make it even more salacious and shocking. The book sold over 200,000 copies. But the public wanted more. Sagawa became a sought-after guest on TV talk shows and as a guest speaker and commentator. The Japanese magazine Spa hired him to write, you'll never believe this, restaurant reviews. He also wrote articles detailing crimes in Japan. He wrote three more novels and became a painter. His preferred subject was depictions of nude women. He even appeared in pornographic films, in one playing a client who gnaws on the flesh of a nude woman. He was often asked to comment on the most heinous crimes that were perpetrated in Japan. He published a commentary book on the serial killing of children that plagued Kobe in 1997. It seems the public couldn't get enough of the gory details of Sagawa's crime, as well as the sick thoughts and fantasies that fueled his gruesome act. Sagawa reveled in retelling the murder story over and over again, playing out his ultimate fantasy of murder, rape, cannibalism, control, and power over his victim many times over. 
He also enjoyed being treated as a celebrity. He was quoted saying that the public had made him the, quote, godfather of cannibalism, and he admitted that this pleased him. Issei Sagawa is still free and living in Japan. As far as we know, he has never attacked another woman. Perhaps his ability to speak freely about his crime and relive the fantasy through the many media interviews he gave were enough to satisfy his urges, for the time being. His parents died within a short time of each other in 2004. His father was ruined once his son returned to Japan as a celebrity cannibal. He was forced to leave his company, and the family's fortune dwindled over time. Sagawa was able to live off of his earnings from his celebrity, for a time. As the years passed, the public began to forget about him, and he no longer had the opportunities to trade on his notoriety. He is still closely watched by local police, wherever he happens to be living. No one wants the cannibal to reemerge and strike again in their town and on their watch. He has no friends, naturally. For a time, while he still had money, he would frequent hostess bars in the city and befriend foreign women who made their living entertaining Japanese businessmen. Back then, he could be somewhat anonymous, he explained, until the widespread use of the Internet changed that. Now it is easy enough for wary hostesses to Google their clients to make sure they're legitimate. As soon as the women discover who he is, Sagawa says, they stay far away from him. Now he makes do by cutting out pictures of women in pornographic magazines and plastering them on his bathroom walls. Super creepy. In 2013, he suffered a cerebral hemorrhage, which caused him to be partially physically disabled. He is cared for by a brother and home care workers. He is now 68 years old, and his last known place of residence was Kawasaki City. He lives on a very limited income, without any family money, and no longer receives offers for interviews or appearances. His fantasies and urges to murder and cannibalize women has not left him, he says. I have the same desires today, of course, he told Julian Ryle of Post Magazine in 2013. They will continue until I die. I like elegant women. I like intelligence and beauty. And when I am able to see all of that in one person, then I cannot help but wonder what she might taste like. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia, and our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. Until next time, be good to one another. Music.